who can do a Riker impression? I don't. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, Mr. Worf. I, yeah, I can. I can do Shatner. I can't do Freaks. I think I can do one Linus Riker. Red alert! Shields up. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today, two special guests beam up from the front lines of the Klingon War for a roundtable discussion on Under the Cloak of War. Then we warp to LV-42, I mean Parnassus Beta, for another born hunt. Is it game over, man? And then finally, we tackle Secret Invasion and why we didn't even bother to finish it. Today we're going to do something a little different than our usual review of an episode. Mark and I are joined by my friends Hannibal Tabu, a world-class writer of comics and fiction and D&D, and Quinn McGowan, a comic book artist extraordinaire and combat veteran, to do a roundtable on Under the Cloak of War, A Klingon war criminal turned defector boards the Enterprise, leaving many of the veterans among the crew on edge. Mabinga, especially, has to grapple with his past and traumas of being a healer turned soldier. Since our goal here is to elevate the level of critique in fandom, we wanted to get the perspective of a combat veteran on Strange New World's attempt to address PTSD and the aftermath of war on those who fought it. Gentlemen, if you don't mind introducing yourself to our audience... Hannibal? Hi, my name is Hannibal Taboo. I am the winner of the 2012 Top Cow Talent Hunt. I wrote for many years for both Bleeding Cool and Comic Book Resources, doing reviews under the title of the Bipal. I um, also recently wrote a Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting book called The Sundering, The Nation Under Our Feet, which was 453% funded on Kickstarter with more than $50,000 in donations. And uh, that's available now everywhere, both digitally and hardcover. And I'm literally actually writing a new uh, encounter right now. Oh, and I'm also uh, the writer of War Medicine from Wonderman Comics and a number of titles from Wonderman Comics, but that's the most recent one, which is a supernatural Western tale of revenge that crosses from Oklahoma to New Orleans to Liberia in 1866. Wow, very impressive. And Quinn? My name is Quinn McGowan. I'm a creative and an artist from Memphis, Tennessee. I was in the Marine Corps when I was a younger man. I'm currently gearing up for a Project Wildfire, which is a creation of mine that I work on with Hannibal, Kickstarter for his graphic novel. I'm also currently in the the mix and in the middle of production on a series called Little Rock Files that I'm doing with Greg Burnham. We just completed a Kickstarter for that recently, and we're getting ready to deliver some of those stories as well. I'm working with Jeff Thorne on some Project Wildfire stuff and some stuff for his Winterman uh, Comics label. And then there's a handful of stuff that I can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you can talk about them again with us when you can talk about them. This episode was a little divisive amongst fandom. And for myself, I can't understand why there isn't more radical empathy for Mabinga. Myself, you know, myself being a survivor of both drug abuse and sexual assault. I understand the fake Starfleet smile that he has to put on in this episode. The panic attacks are way too real. But Quinn, I was wanting to get your perspective without getting into the exact nature of your service on what you got out of this episode and and what everyone else got out of this episode. 
I want to make sure that I, I'm clear to approach this on a few levels. Sure. For me, on a baseline level, as a Star Trek fan, what Mbanga goes through is, to me, the embodiment of Star the genuine conflict of interest that even Boimler gets into on, as he has a, a fit on an episode of Lower Decks, where he kind of goes into, we don't want to fight with other life forms. We want to explore. We want to dig up crystals and figure out what's going on in the universe. And we end up having to do that as a result of kind of our arrangements with other member planets. So I think that there is a realness to Mbanga's personal conflict and that that is a reflection of what Starfleet is as an organization. Mm -hmm. I also want to be clear on the reality that the trauma that Ryan expressed is not vastly different from some of the traumas that I have experienced as a result of some of that service, down to the panic attacks, down to the fake smile. I experienced conflict in a way that for a long time, that I had to work on with the help of therapy shaped the way that I looked at some of the people that we were in conflict with mm -hmm. during that time of service. And it reflected in my behavior with people of that ethnicity and background here in America that were totally removed. It really rung out with Mbanga, but this, again, as a Star Trek fan, goes back as far as Chief O'Brien's biases. Mm -hmm. And part of that conflict that I enjoyed in the episode comes from the way that I felt before I joined the military and what I learned after having been in it. Mm. I am a bit conflicted in the joy that I feel in getting to see Mbanga on screen as kind of a total badass. Like that energy carries off a badassness that kind of betrays where he goes later and what he feels and what he ends up confessing. The ugliness that he had to embody to get out of that situation. Right. And the in the confession that he had to give that up, even talking to Chapel before he goes on that mission, that he wanted to come back whole for his family as something better. But at the end of it, that ugliness ends up carrying through in the life that he is. Yeah, I, that's that's all very potent stuff. And, you know, one of the things I personally got out of this episode was that this was about negative bias and confronting that negative bias, both as an audience member and mm. for the characters. And confronting your own negative bias is, for me, one of the foundational things about Star Trek. That's interesting what you're saying about bias, because one of the things that I felt about the Klingon was that he wasn't really healing anything with his actions. Mm. He came off to me more like a part of the propaganda arm, like he was a useful idiot who just assured everybody that their prejudices were correct. Like, yeah, that is the way Klingons are. We are awful and we're violent and, and things like that. Anytime somebody had something negative to say about Klingons, he was there to sort of back them up about it. I'd like to speak to that briefly. Sure. A lot of that energy read to me as model minority energy. Mm. A, he's playing a role, right? Like he's, he's, he's kind of swimming in his own shame. So... I think that Starfleet finds his reaction to his own PTSD as useful, but I'm not 100% sure that he's kind of playing along. I think he's carrying a couple of layers of behavior. One is, I must maintain the lie that I am the butcher of Jagal. Mm -hmm. And then I've got to hit the right notes for the human delegation. There is a, a lack of understanding on both sides 
of who the other party is. I don't think that that necessarily comes through in the writing. That's just the energy that I get. Because mm. one of the things that I enjoyed about the episode was never really being sure that the general didn't mean what he said about what he wanted. And I felt that conflict because, you know, we have the luxury of knowing that in another 120 some odd years, Worf would be on the bridge of the next iteration of the Enterprise. Yeah, I just connected with that because I've seen it among uh, Hispanics in Miami who kind of want to make good with the white folks. Ooh, okay. And they'll say things like, this generation of Hispanics is not melting into the pot. You're right. They're keeping their language. They're not taking on our values. I feel that. I've definitely had my share of uh, respectability and generational politics leveled at me in terms of the idea that I wasn't doing enough of what someone believed was their idea of being Black, be it politically, be it socially, be it culturally, be it even culinarily, and seen that happen. So I've, I can hear where everybody's coming from here. This particular Klingon, however, I do believe he believes what he says. I do believe he doesn't understand how to get there. Due to, there's a line that I quote a lot from a rapper named Raskas. It says, the diameter of your knowledge is the circumference of your activity. And I believe that all he knows is people think Klingons are bad. So I should say Klingons are bad. And therefore, people will think Klingons are bad and think I'm a good one and I can do whatever I'm supposed to do. Uh, it's a theory that in the black community has led to, you know, your Tim Scotts or your uh, Candace Owens or whatever that believe they can behave their way out of their ethnicity and the perceptions they believe are attached to it. I actually have, he's the Candace Owens of Klingons written in my notes here. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a rough hit, but it's fair. It's fair. So, <laughs> and if Mbenga is faking his way through being normal, he could probably see somebody else faking their way through being normal as well. Yeah. Right. And I, I got from Ra a lot that he was, from Mbinga's perspective at least, that he was profiting in some fashion off of Mbinga's own actions mm -hmm. and then wanting to use Mbinga further. Yeah, that's where I saw the offense. Yeah, that's where I saw it. And I thought he was being very purposeful in his manipulation, especially in the fight scene. I got this sense, and I don't know if the writing is there for it, but the sense that I got from the performance, at least, is that Ra was somewhat aware of who Mabinga was. And during the fight scene, it confirmed for him who he was, and he felt like he could further manipulate Mabinga into being this sort of symbol of joint peace and cooperation between the two cultures. My belief is slightly different than that. Because the basis of his deception was that he was the butcher of Jagal. Therefore, if he ran into the actual butcher of Jagal, somebody who could actually pull the sheets on his entire game plan, that's not somebody you screw with. I think right. he just thought he was a veteran right. who's mad. And the right. fact that when he realized, oh, crap, it's you. Oh, well, shoot, I'm doing this now. I got to roll with it. I think he got in far deeper than he wanted to be. Right. And I, I think I'm bringing more to their relationship than perhaps is actually there. Because I saw it more as the narcissist manipulator that I have encountered in my own trauma. So I, I fully admit mm -hmm. I'm probably imprinting my own background and experience onto this story, which, you know, if, that makes it a great piece of fiction for me. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk of the, the false smile that Mbanga has, but Ra has that too. Yes. Right? He's carrying through with a very deceptive acceptance. 
And speaking to that Candace Owens note, there was definitely a Tommy Sotomayor moment of acceptance where he's like, yeah, I don't want your rich crew to, to be distracted. So let me go to the rest of the ship. He clearly heard it. And that to me is where the manipulator shows up, right? Oh, this is right. where I get to work my magic. I'm going to put the screws. And that I see a kind of even a perversion in Ra that he kind of delights in being around these veterans that he knows are being forced to be around him. Oh, oh, for mm-hmm. sure. Especially when he grabs Mabinga's arm and says, oh, I hear oh, you're such God. a great fighter. Why don't you have spar with me? And I'm like, whoa, that's probably where I started to have a colored version of Raw based on my own trauma, because I've seen that done to me. We're like, oh, I'm going to get you to be on my side, even though, you know, deep down, I'm not on your side. Yes. You know, since we've brought up the ambiguity of the ending, you know, there was a lot of subspace chatter on on Trek Twitter for sure that just sort of blanketly said Mabinga cold-bloodedly killed Raw. And like you said, Quinn, there's just ample room for almost all interpretations. So I'd like to get, you know, Mark, uh, Hannibal, and Quinn, your perspective on what that ending was about and what it was trying to do. Again, I love the idea of the conflicted healer. You know, the, the, the idea that saints are sinners who have fallen. So. In Banga's line to Pike, I think is the most striking because you have the luxury to see what's best in people, right? And he wasn't in the Klingon War because the brass didn't want the Enterprise, their pride, their, their, their flagship to catch any damage or catch any strays. So in saying that line, he really is addressing a reality around the cast of the Enterprise. And how they get to be above and beyond a lot of the dirt that the rest of Starfleet is stuck with. So I think that ambiguity, again, comes from speaking to the heart of the duality of Starfleet. Oh, we're just explorers. We're just good people. We're all just innocent men, right? Like, that's kind of the vibe. And shows like DS9 have done a lot of the, 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 the heavy pickup. Like, the rest of Starfleet has to bear the weight of war, while the flagship kind of gets the parade around and speak to the best of what Starfleet intends to be, while, while you know, the grunts, as it were, are stuck on the ground, suffering with the impact. I would say, personally, that in my look at this, I don't believe that Mbenga planned to cold-bloodedly kill him. Because if Mbenga planned to cold-bloodedly kill him, no one would have ever seen it happen. He would have done it, and he would, you know, he's a a freaking butcher of a Jagal. Why would he do it in a way that anyone would notice? So he didn't plan to kill him. But is it possible that as a crime of passion that uh, Ra's presence so infuriated him and he lost control? I don't know. And frankly, I would guess neither does he. Because (laughs) given what we saw with the panic attack, given what we saw with his struggle with what was going on, he had a lot going on. And it was very difficult for him to uh, manage that and to keep that going in a way that was, you know, holding it together and acting normal for all you non-veteran weirdos. Um, So (laughs) I do believe that he killed him. I can't say how much intent uh, or how much planning went 
into it. I can guarantee not much planning went into it because, yeah, I mean, Umbenga, if, he was gonna, if he's going to kill you, you'll be dead and literally no one will have any idea what happened. You'd have been dead because of that parsley. Oh, my God. Chekhov's parsley. Yes. I thought that that's how he was going to do away with him. Mm. Oh, that would have been great. Uh, you know, I, 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 I kind of with, I'm with you, Hannibal. I mean, he was the ghost, right? He has the most hand to hand combat kills. If he wanted to purposefully kill Ra, it would have been done with, and no one would be the wiser on the ship, right? For me, I keep coming to the question of what would I do if I confronted my tormentor as, or, or, or someone that has been the source of my my trauma as as Mavinga does and you can see the conflict in him he knows that he is a ticking time bomb in that scene and he keeps trying to push Ra away but Ra keeps coming at him and there's something very almost noir about the ending yeah you know you call it it could be a crime of passion it could be a a matter of self-defense but either way, Mabinga was under threat in any case, regardless of what Ra's Absolutely. true intentions were, because Mabinga even says it, leave me alone. I'm begging you. Yes, exactly. In regards to me watching this, while we did get some of his singing in an actual musical episode, he would have been very fit to start singing. He had it coming. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame. If you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it, don't tell me you wouldn't have done the same. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. Uh, and I hope we can have you on again. I'm sure there'll be more Strange New Worlds to talk about or more Star Trek to talk about in the year to come. Yes. Thank you so much for coming by. Happy to do it. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah thank you so much. Strange New Worlds ended its second season on a cliffhanger with hegemony. Captain Patel and Nurse Chapel are bringing supplies to a non-aligned human colony when they find themselves in the middle of a Gorn invasion. Pike takes the shuttle to the surface to face the enemy head-on, while the Enterprise looks for a way to deactivate the Gorn's jamming devices without starting a full-scale war. This was an okay episode, you know. It's given serious uh, best-of-both-world vibes, strange new worlds, first real cliffhanger. I enjoyed it. I think there was a little less character work in this one than in uh, previous episodes. It seemed like this was all just set up for the cliffhanger and the inevitable part two when uh, Strange New Worlds returns for its third season. Mm-hmm. Other than the girlfriend woes, there wasn't really a lot of character work on like the inevitable comparison to Best of Both Worlds, which was a Riker story and about Rikers deciding whether he was ready for a command or not. And Picard possibly coming to terms with the end of civilization. Yeah. And that being on his head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I do want to say I admired that they restrained themselves and we did not get another cliffhanger that was the end of the universe as we know it. Yeah. That we got every season of Discovery. Uh, that we got in all three seasons of Picard. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't sense uh, a war brewing here. I sense that the Enterprise is in trouble. Yeah. And they can choose to leave or they can choose to try to get their people back. And right. are they going to survive that situation? But not that the 
Federation is going to fall into something horrendous. Or AI tentacles coming out of the sky to destroy the universe or whatever it was at the end of season one of Picard. Yeah, this was a this episode was fine. It was a decent hour of action, but you know, like you said, it was it was a it was a generic one. Uh, it was mostly a puzzle box. There wasn't a lot of insight into crew members. But after a season of everybody getting real growth, maybe we're just spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we are. Gosh darn it, writers of Strange New World, you've spoiled us. We expect deep character moments in every episode now. <laughs> yeah. But we did get Scotty, and that was pretty amazing. I, I, we did. Played by an actual Scott, Martin Quinn. Yeah, I, I love the actor. Yeah, he had a great energy. He had a great energy, and his face and his mannerisms gave me a sense of James Doohan. Yes, his just physicality reminded me of James Doohan. Some of the way he interacted with Pike also gave me shades of uh, Simon Pegg's Scotty. I loved his whole introduction. And I'm wondering now if every season finale, Strange New World is going to give us yet another member of Kirk's crew. <laughs> so is Bones going to be in the third season finale? Or are we going to get Bones in part two when the inevitable Farragut shows up to help Pike out of this situation and Kirk is in the premiere? Is Bones on the Farragut with Kirk? Could be. I'm still wondering when Cyborg is going to show up. <laughs> yes, and I want him to be played by Matt Berry. <laughs> or, or Zachary Quinto. That's the better guess. That would be good. That would be really good. But I'm wondering, we've got Chapel, we've got Uhura, we've got Spock, we've got Mabinga, who's still on the Enterprise during Kirk's era. We've got Scotty now. Are we seeing sort of a soft reboot of the original series in our future? Because this, this feels like this is where Strange New Worlds is inevitably going to go. It's getting to the point where we're not going to be able to see this as anything more than a reboot. Of yeah. the franchise. Yeah, and, I think uh, that's where it's headed. I mean, I'm all for it. I like Paul Wesley's Kirk. I like all the actors that are playing the legacy characters. I'm okay if they say, let's do Kirk's adventures again. I hope they just take Harlan Ellison's original City on the Edge of Forever and do that as an episode. Huh. It seems like the Gorn are going to have their own ending here. Yeah. And, you know, there really is no room for Arena at all. Yeah, because basically April says the entire thesis of Arena in the beginning, that monsters are only monsters until we get to know them. I think it's safe to say that we don't understand the Gorn. Well, I've seen them up close and personal, and they're not hard to understand, Bob. They're monsters. Monsters are word to describe those who don't understand us. And sometimes a monster is just a monster. Yeah. To which Pipe goes back to Strange New World's take on it is that a monster is just a monster. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I think we're planting the seeds there. It's almost a conversation between the viewers and the producers because <laughs> it's viewers who have been saying, hey, you know, the Gorn were just regular folks who were upset about their space being invaded. Yeah. And I believe a couple of people on the staff have said, you know, literally, sometimes a monster is, is just a monster. That's fine if, the, if they go in that direction because you know me. I'm, I accept Strange New Worlds for, for the show that it is. I try to look at it in that lens. I've come to terms with their portrayal of the Gorn. I would have preferred it just to be in another alien race. But if this is a sneaky way to get us to do a reboot of the franchise from Kirk's era, I'm okay with it. 
Um, we've talked about it. I, we would rather have a hard reboot, but I like who they got. I like the uniforms. I like the ship design, the interiors. Fuck it. Give us the original series again. Yeah, I find it hard, though, to ever get on board with a species that is co- completely animalized. And and I think they did more of that with the Gorn sure. in this episode. They're described as locusts at one point. They're said to be attracted to solar flares via instinct. We mostly just see their juveniles. And the one adult Gorn we see isn't portrayed as much more intelligent, yeah. really. Uh, it doesn't even have a weapon. It just fights with its hands and its tail. Yeah. I do agree with that. And I hope that in part two, because we saw the inkling of Pike saying, maybe we can talk to them. If this is the Gorn, and if it's somehow they're going to tie it into the Gorn of the original series, maybe these are just the foot soldiers to the bipedal Gorns we see in the original series. I don't know. But I hope that they surprise us in the conclusion to this cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. that they give us something a little different because you know they've kind of played with it but we've talked about that we've, they've played with this idea of judging a race or a culture by one particular aspect but star trek still leans into that racial determinism and that it's biological or animalistic in the case of the gorn right yeah and there was one moment where i thought the crew was going to get in trouble for underestimating the gorn it was the part where they're in the shuttle and they're trying to get the transponder and then the, the Gorn kid jumps out at them. Yeah. But it doesn't attack them. And they're all puzzled as to why it ran for it. And I thought, you, you idiots, run. It's smarter than you think it is. Yeah. It knew it couldn't take you all on. And it's getting reinforcements. You know, it's going to tattle to an adult. But, but no, it just sniffed Patel and realized she had eggs in her. And, and so it left them alone. Yeah, that was giving me serious Ripley meets the Xenomorph in... Alien 3. <laughs> yeah, it was just a dumb animal after yeah. all. Yeah, and they can't be dumb. There has to be, you know, maybe it's kind of like uh, like the Kazinti in the uh, Larry Niven books, right? There's the smart ones, and then the rest are all dumb animals. The women are all dumb animals. I'm trying not to say it because <laughs> it's gross. No, that's not... Let's not gloss over Larry Niven's intense misogyny where, except for humans, all females in the universe are breeding cattle. Yeah. And even human women just get by on luck. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, like if it was something of that nature, right, that there was a more evolved version of the Gorn that was really in charge and why they have starships and why they can build a communications platform that cuts out transporters and subspace signals, you know. They can't just be dumb, animalistic creatures, because then it, it goes back to the Klingon question. How does this society sustain itself? Where mm-hmm. is the Gorn proctologist? Who's looking up the cloaca of the Gorn? <laughs> Yeah, we're never going to know. <laughs> I mean, I don't want a scene with one, that's for sure. But You want to get an idea that they're functional. Yeah, I want to get an idea that they're functional, that they're not just, you know, these creatures that spit and impregnate people as breeding yeah. stock you know, that are like, you know, flies putting larvae into animals. I want a little bit more, and I'm hoping we get that in the, in the cliffhanger, especially since the colonist plus 
the rest of the landing party are captured by the Gorn. I mean, poor Ortega, she finally gets a piece of the action, and now she's a prisoner. Yeah, Ortega is finally coming into form after two years. She's a joy to watch now, and I was glad to see more of her again, just like we did in um, Lost in Translation. Yeah, me too. I loved how she was having fun and giving Pike some shit for being a little nauseous. And being smart. Yeah, yeah, because she knew that if they started the engines while they were still at a certain altitude, it would tip the Gorn off that they were there. Yeah, no, I loved it. I loved it. I love Ortega's. And once again, it gave us that shot of the ship falling below the horizon, and then a moment of tension before flying up again triumphantly. I love that Pike was nauseous and a little queasy and nervous, like, you're, you're going to pull up soon, right? And she's just like, I thought you were a test pilot. I was. Girl, he hasn't been a test pilot in a long time. He's gotten a little used to, to the fat cat captain's chair <laughs> too much. Well, it goes back to our discussion in the previous episode that Pike doesn't have a lot of real-world no. experience. He's a very sheltered individual who has a very sheltered outlook on the world. Yes. Pike is a diplomat more than he is a soldier. And, you know, maybe that's why Kirk is the right captain of the Enterprise at the time, you know, like in Balance of Terror. And maybe even in Arena. He's the most military of all the Star Trek captains, right? He very clearly is, I'm in charge. It's my responsibility who lives and who dies. It's not a democracy. And Pike is a little more like easygoing, first name basis with everyone, has this sort of hunky-dory view of the world, hasn't had a lot of of that traumatic events like Mabinga or Chapel or Kirk. And I think he's a little ahead of his time in the type of Starfleet captain that he is, right? He's Picard before Picard. Mm -hmm. And I think that shows in the cliffhanger because he's he's lost as to what to do. Number one has to snap him out of it. She's like, orders, Captain, orders. Because he's sort of a little dumbfounded at the end because he hasn't had that combat experience. But that kind of flies in the face of what we saw in, in Memento Mori because he's an extremely skilled tactician there. Yes, exactly. Well, to be fair a little bit to Pike, the woman he loves is in sick bay, potentially about to give birth to a bunch of little gorns. His entire landing party, plus 100 colonists, have been taken. Might be a little shaken, just a little. But given the order to run, at least for now, it shouldn't be a hard one. No. And every moment that he's not acting, somebody else is dying on the ship. No, that's true. Like with every single hit that we see, somebody's dead, probably. Oh. Or injured in some ridiculous way that they may not recover from. Yeah, for sure. But all over, I think that, and I was discussing this with my friend Matt, most everybody is competent in their jobs. Um, I think the solutions that they come up with are good. There's no idiot ball being tossed around here, except, I think, with Chapel, who somehow is the only person left alive on the Cayuga, and as a nurse, gets up and doesn't bother to look for any other survivors. Yeah, that kind of bugged me, too. She didn't even use the computer to search for any more life forms on the ship. Or check a few pulses of the people around her. Yes, that too. She has no regard for any of the bodies around her. Like if she had gone to the computer, said, computer, any additional life signs? And if the computer said no, I'd be like, okay, at least she checked. I'm good. Let's move on with the story. <laughs> you know? 
I like that, you know, when they said the colony had patterned itself after a Midwestern American town, I was like, oh, the only available outdoor set for them. <laughs> Budget constraint. I got it. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, but it's totally fitting within, you know, the original series way of showing us colonies and planets. It wasn't much different from Omicron Sadie 3. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. It was like Sandoval's people in the side of paradise and like the colonists who want to go back to a simpler way of life. But honestly, to me, it makes sense for a new colony to have like a small town until you get all the infrastructure in place for you to actually expand and build those oddly shaped buildings that we see on Starbase 11. But I just, I just, I just, I just found it funny. The like Midwestern town. I'm like, oh, it's the old Star Trek budget saving trick. <laughs> yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we reviewed the Marvel show Secret Invasion, and called it a mess of overused tropes and cliches, seemingly strung together by the same AI that made its hideous opening credits. So we said if the next episode was bad, we'd skip weekly discussions and do a full review of the season. Well, we both got to episode three and tapped the fuck out. The show was consistent trash. And apparently all the other reviewers that did finish it agreed. Yeah, I was done with it in episode two when the anti-Semitic conspiracy crap became over the top with most world leaders replaced with Skrull. And for those who think I'm being sensitive, I beg you to look up the well-known anti-Semite David Icke's lizard people conspiracy theory, which apparently 12 million Americans fully subscribe to. It's been going around since the 90s, but really caught on during the Obama era when the comic Secret Invasion is based on was written. It's just ick. My friend David says how he considers doing anything is by asking himself if it's worth the heartbeat because we only have so many heartbeats in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. And I've been using that since he mentioned it to me like a few months ago. Is it worth the heartbeat? Was Secret Invasion? Hell no. <laughs> you know, as you said, it's filled with anti-Semitic tropes. It's unsure what it's actually trying to say about immigration. And as much as I love Samuel L. Jackson, he wasn't enough for me to waste any further heartbeats. After Loki and She-Hulk, this was just like low-tier to mid-Marvel movie at best. At worst, a muddled political commentary where black and brown people are forced to defend and uphold the very system that seeks to marginalize them. Oh, totally. A cop-ganda story disguised as a Marvel film. Yeah. And you know, between you and me, Mark, and our audience and the world in general, I'm over status quo authoritarian superhero stories. Give me a good old social crusader Superman again. Oh, wait, hint, they did. It's My Adventures with Superman on Max, and it's amazing. Go check it out. That's worth a heartbeat. Yeah, we should probably talk about this show at some point. Uh -huh. So, you know, instead of giving this truly horrendous piece of shit any more attention, we're going to talk about how it's okay to trust your gut and just not finish things. Uh -huh. Okay. One thing that I really hate about fandom is that for fans, you can never have seen enough of their favorite show to determine that you don't like it. I know pilots can be wonky at times, so I'm all for giving a show two or three episodes to kick in, but that's not enough for a lot of fans. 
I've watched entire seasons of shows and been told, no, it doesn't really get good until three years in. That can be like 30 to 72 episodes. With Deep Space Nine, I watched, I don't know, when, when did Dax die? Season six. Season six. So I watched five and a half seasons of that show. And for every Deep Space Nine fan, that's not enough to say, this isn't for me. You got to watch those last five seconds, man. And I actually did see the finale and, and Dukat fights some fire demons and Cisco becomes a god or something. And that's, that's not for me either. Space Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel the need to be a completist anymore. And when I got my MFA, my fiction professors used to say, you have until page 60 to hook your reader into finishing a book. In fact, the only rule in writing is never to be fucking boring, mm -hmm. whether on the page or on the screen. I give books now less than 60 pages. If I'm not into it by the first 30, then it's not worth my heartbeat. I, I don't finish the book. I give shows at least three episodes, especially if they're serialized, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm not grabbed by something, and it doesn't have to be the storyline itself. It can just be a character, a plot, a theme. I'm out. The best example of this for me was, I remember when the pilot of Babylon 5 came out, and it didn't really grab me as much yet. I was intrigued by it because it was something different than Star Trek. But what got me to watch the series was Michael O'Hare's Commander Sinclair. Like, I was hooked on that character. So I wanted to see the show. And the show premiere, Midnight on the Firing Line, was so great. And just like, I'm into this world now. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to waste any more heartbeats just for that sense of completion. There are many shows and movies like any current or future Nolan films or any white bread Wes Anderson films I'll never see oh, God. because I know I have no interest in them. So why waste a heartbeat? Not everything is for everybody. And that's exactly how it should be. We think we must see it all. How the fuck can we? I mean, at the height of streaming, there's now what, 500 plus new shows or some wild ass statistic like that. Plus the stack of books that keeps piling up around me. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, just keep buying books. But there isn't a lifetime of heartbeats to see or read at all. So why even try if your gut is saying, mm, this isn't for me? Yeah, I also think there are times when you can hear a premise and just say, that's not something I'm interested in. <laughs> uh, my wife loves Succession. She talks about it like I talk about Star Trek, man. And <laughs> try as she may to get me to watch it. I don't want to watch a story about rich and titled people. I don't care if they're the butt of the joke. I don't care if they're made to look awful. It's still 40 hours spent with revolting people that I don't care about. I, I know what I'm going to enjoy just by reading what's on the tin. We all do. And we shouldn't feel bad for having that sense and going with it. Like you said, there's too much stuff in the world. There needs to be some selection process. Yeah, and you have to have your own personal selection process. I'm with you. I heard the premise of Succession. They said, unless it has Joan Collins beating the shit out of Diane Carroll in like <laughs> shoulder pads, I don't want to see it. I don't really give a shit about rich and titled people either. But it's based on King Lear. Oh, shit. I read King Lear. I've read King Lear. I've seen Kurosawa's 
Ron, which is basically King Lear in samurai times. So yeah, I'm good with King Lear. <laughs> but you know, there's this fallacy in our society that we have to know everything about everything, especially in fandom. And there's this FOMO about having to be in the know. Nah. Mm-hmm. Find the things you like, enjoy them, consume them, hell, create them. And also, you can be a fan of the parts of things that you really like and discard other parts. Yeah. You don't, it, it doesn't define you as a fan if you don't read every single comic and see every single episode. I really only like Batman of the animated series. I read some of the comics when I was a kid, but I don't know the whole lore. I don't think that that doesn't make me a Batman fan. And certainly expecting someone to know the minutia of every little thing in a franchise has been the gatekeeper's tool since who knows when. It's that fandom litmus test, right? You know, I'm a huge Superman fan, but there are some things about it. Like, I love the first season of Lois and Clark. The second season was okay, but after the whole... Lois is a frog and it's not the real Lois he married storyline. I was like, yeah, I'm out of this show. You know, yeah. even the things I love, I will say, okay, I'm with you up to this point, but now you've lost me. And now I just don't feel it's worth my time to continue on with this version of the thing I love. There are still like whole, I, I, I think there's at least a season and a half of Enterprise episodes I haven't watched. And I don't even think that I'll ever go back to watch it. And you've watched 20 times more Enterprise than I have. I know. I've watched, I've watched season four. I've watched season one. I've watched half of season two. And I didn't even bother with season three. I mean, I know what vaguely happens. I've seen one or two episodes. But I was like, eh. You know, why? I, why would I waste my time if it's not something I like? Why should you waste your time if it's something you don't like? <laughs> yeah. So we're giving all of you permission right now to not finish things. Movies, shows, books, whatever. Watch three years of it. Watch five minutes of it. Watch none of it. It doesn't matter. Unless you're avoiding something because it's woke, you're not a bad person for saying, this isn't for me. That's it for this week. The Jerks will be on hiatus until the start of Lower Deck Season 4 in mid-September. Now, we won't leave you on a cliffhanger, but we will tease that when we return, we're going to talk about the new Babylon 5 movie, The Road Home, and revisit one of the classics of science fiction film. Until then, I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all of her work at SockPuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with? Or just want to open a hailing frequency? You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Shipful of Jerks. I used to say hegemony, but they said it hegemony on the episode. So I guess hegemony. that might be the right way to say it. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's one of those words that I, I said once in a class 
and someone said, you shouldn't use words you can't pronounce. I'm like, go fuck yourself, you white colonial asshole. <laughs> ah. <laughs>